Good morning, Three Rivers. Happy Father's Day, dads. Hope you've had a fantastic day so far. Um, You know, one of the glorious things about what uh, is happening in the life of our church is that uh, one of the benefits of starting a second campus is we knew this was part of the challenge. Um, There were Sundays where you would stand in the back and watch folks come in and they would leave because there was no place to sit or the perception is there was no place for them. And so by starting a second campus, not only is there abundant room, but on low attendance Sundays, such as basically June through the middle of August, um, there's all kinds of room. So exhort you, encourage you, great opportunity for outreach. If anyone would come, invite them and bring them and sit with them. And, uh, and may God and His grace expand the kingdom as people hear the gospel and have an opportunity to respond in faith. And may you grow in your discipleship by bringing people into the kingdom and doing the work of the Great Commission right here in Rome, Georgia, right? So plenty of room, plenty of room for growth, and that's a good thing. So enjoy this Father's Day and uh, and enjoy the day, guys. We're going to have an opportunity this evening to uh, do that together and picnic as we celebrate the gospel and baptism as folks tonight will be baptized and... Pastor Jim will have that uh, some announcements about that at the end of the service. So I hope you'll all come out for that. Last time, totally going to jump into the text in a second. Uh, there was someone passing by and saw and heard and was baptized, right? That's why we do public baptism, right? Baptism is a public profession of faith. And so when it's public, right, it witnesses to the gospel. How cool is that? So that might just happen tonight. So how about this afternoon... Say a prayer to the Lord and ask Him to do that again tonight. How cool would that be, right? What a great way to celebrate Father's Day. Get to eat outside. And by the way, it's not like sweltering hot. It's kind of like not humid. So it's going to be nice. There's going to be a creek. There's going to be bathrooms inside. And there's going to be people baptized, right? And make a public profession of faith. So good time tonight. Uh, join me. Acts chapter 6, verse 8. All the way through chapter 7, verse 60. And no, we're not going to read all of that together. And uh, we're going to look at it together and, uh, and we're going to see what the Lord's saying to us from this text. So join me in prayer. Father, for the great, great sake of your name, for your glory and for our joy, we ask that you would right now cause your kingdom to come. That over us, Lord Jesus, you would spread the rule of your kingdom. We pray that your will would be done on this earth, in this room, in our hearts, as it is done in heaven. Holy Spirit, we ask you to rule by teaching us, instructing us, guiding us into truth. Rooting out anything that is not true. Leading us to the head that is Christ Jesus. That we may grow into him. And be rooted and grounded in Him. Would you do that this morning? We pray for your glory and for our joy. Amen. Acts chapter 6 verse 8 through chapter 7 verse 60. This is the story of Stephen. Stephen who would be the first martyr of the church in its early years. We're going to see in this narrative of Stephen's Ministry and his dying, the kingdom advance. And you remember Acts 1-8 is our framework. Acts 1-8 is the framework through which we look at the whole book of Acts and this narrative of the work of the Spirit of God in birthing the church and advancing the kingdom of God. So today we're going to see the kingdom advance. Remember Acts 1-8, and you will be my witnesses. Not you might be my witnesses, this is a possibility that this might happen. But no, those of you who know me, who follow me, will be filled with my spirit. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So we're going to see the kingdom advance through wisdom, through prophetic words, and through dying well. Through wisdom, prophetic words... And dying well. Remember, Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The Spirit has already navigated the church through receiving His empowerment at Pentecost. We've seen an influx of 3,000 new followers of Jesus that had to be discipled. you imagine that? Imagine that small group ministry. Imagine that radical life group ministry, right? They've healed lame beggars. 
There's been questioning about their motives and their intentions in healing. They've shared their resources. The Spirit has navigated an internal and intentional threat to their unity through deception. The Lord has done signs and wonders through the hands of the disciples. They've been imprisoned. They've received supernatural escape. They've been beaten. They've participated in a little civil disobedience for the sake of the kingdom. And they've experienced and been navigated through by the Spirit the drawing of distinctions with an intentional response to preserve unity. And now, the community of the kingdom, the church, is going to encounter its worst violence in the narrative. As a spirit-filled, wise servant of the kingdom named Stephen is going to perform signs and wonders, he's going to preach the gospel, he's going to refute and push back Through the work of the Spirit, those who come against Him in wisdom and power, He's going to speak prophetically and make application to His culture, and He's going to die well. And I would say to you this morning, that's a life well lived. Short though it may be, a life well lived. So as we look at our passage today, Acts 6 verse 8 through chapter 7 verse 60, we're going to make some observations. We're going to ask the question, what does this mean? And we're going to see how we can make application to... The testimony of Stephen's life. Remember the past few weeks I've drawn your attention to how the scriptures talk about your testimonies, O Lord. Teach me how to walk in your way. And how the Psalms are full of this encouragement and exhortation that, Lord, I love your testimonies. So they teach me how to walk in your way. The book of Acts is the testimony, the Spirit of God leading the people of God to advance the kingdom of God. And so we're going to see how in the testimony, the witness of Stephen's life... We're going to see how we can take that and put that into practice to be agents of God's kingdom and advancing the kingdom right here in Roman Floyd County. Particularly men, I want you to make sure you listen up. And you're not going to hear a beat down, right? I'm not going to beat you down. Dads get beat down enough, okay? This is an encouragement to you to look around you. Look in the text at great examples of men who lived well and died well. I got I didn't intend to say this because I intended to have a, a gift for dads particularly because I couldn't afford to buy, uh, probably could have, but I just couldn't justify that. But anyway, a book for all the dads who work in Radical Kids, right? And it's uh, one of my heroes, a guy named uh, Dick Winters. But who Dick Winters is? You know who Dick Winters is? Raise your hand. Give testimony to your manliness. Amen. Very good. Major Dick Winters is the commanding officer of Easy Company, the 506, 506 Parachute Infantry Regiment, 101st Airborne. Uh, Easy Company, right? D-Day, right? Band of Brothers has written about these guys. Stephen Ambrose wrote the book, Band of Brothers, about these guys. And then they made the incredible miniseries, which is one of the best miniseries ever done, right? A great hero in the faith. They're men to look around you to see who lived life well, bravely, powerfully. Stephen is one of those. And it is okay to look at men who lived life well and died well and emulate their example, right? So we have a testimony today of a man who lived well and died well. We want to take a look at that. We want to see how we can emulate that, okay? And by the way, ladies, that doesn't cut you off from imitating this example too. Great example of how to live life in such a way makes much of Jesus and everything advances the kingdom. So observation number one. Observation number one. Chapter 6, verse 8 through verse 15. We'll read this section together. Stephen lived well in service and in kingdom power. Stephen lived well in service and in kingdom power. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against his holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs Moses delivered to us. 
And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. What do we see here? What does it mean? Stephen, number one, was a servant appointed to bring about unity. And thus we understand from chapter 6, verse 1 to 7, he was well thought of by the church and had a stellar reputation. Remember, let's not divorce the passage today from last week. Stephen was one of the ones chosen by the church to minister unity in this situation where a distinction was drawn between people in the church because he was known to be full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, and he was well thought of, had a stellar reputation. So this Stephen, who's not a pastor, hear this, he's not a pastor, he's not a church leader, He's a servant of the kingdom of God. And he was thought so highly of that they said, Hey, why don't you come help us distribute the food and help serve so that there aren't distinctions drawn among us? And Stephen said, Okay. His ministry wasn't identified as being a food hander outer, but a man who was full of the Spirit and full of wisdom and had a stellar reputation. That's awesome. That helps us to see that everybody in this room is not identified by what you do in the kingdom, but the character that identifies you. As a matter of fact, as we look into Paul and he, what he taught us in Timothy regarding even pastoral ministry, it's not a skill set, it's character. And one of the great failings of the church in the West is we look for leaders who have great skill sets, who are great leaders, who are great speakers, who are great organizers, who are great managers. And nowhere in the text does it tell us that people are chosen for ministry because they're a great skill set. It's not there. As a matter of fact, when David is chosen as king, God had to remind the people, I don't look at the outside. I'm not looking for the guy who's taller than everybody. We had one of those. Didn't work out so well. I'm looking deep into the character of a person to see whether or not they love me more than anything else. Stephen was a man full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, stellar reputation. Thus, he was well suited for ministry. Stephen lived well in service and in kingdom power. He was a servant. He was appointed then as a man who was well thought of and had a stellar character. We see here in verse 8 that Stephen was full of grace and power. Just flat out says, and Stephen full of grace and power. We see here also in verse 8, Stephen was doing great wonders and signs. We read through the book of Acts that signs and wonders accompany those who do the work of the kingdom. Signs and wonders accompany those who do great work. Remember, these are not the apostles. These are not the church leaders. Stephen is one of the everybodies with a stellar character. And signs and wonders are being done through his ministry to bring great fame to the reputation of Jesus. Matter of fact, Luke doesn't really say anything about Stephen preaching the gospel because he doesn't have to. We understand from the narrative that that was everybody's job. You will be my witnesses. That was their task. It was the function. So Luke doesn't have to come here and say, oh, by the way, he's preaching the gospel. He's made that clear already. Their task and their function was to be witnesses of Jesus and his kingdom. We go back and study Acts chapter 1 again, remember? The kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom. You're my witnesses to that. So I want you to go and tell everywhere I send you. Stephen was doing this work and signs and wonders were accompanying his work. That's what he'd been tasked to do. And God was blessing that work from character and obedience to Jesus' command. Next we see in verse 9, something very important. What does it say? Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freed men. Stephen began to be opposed by the spiritual powers that be. Synagogue of the freedmen is an interesting group of people. These were members of a Jewish synagogue who were descended from Jews who had been captured and taken to Rome by Pompey in like 106 to 48 BC-ish era, because Pompey's about 60 BC. But they were later released. 
What Pompey found was, a little, just a little nugget of history for you here, is that the Jews adhered so strictly to their religious and national customs that they were worthless as slaves. Not all the freedmen returned to Jerusalem. Some stayed in Rome. So in the time of the Roman writer Pliny, a freedman was described as a mean commoner. The freedmen derived their name from a Latin term for one manumitted or the son of such a former slave. These were cats with an agenda, hardened and not real open, and strict adherence to the law. And so he comes preaching Jesus. He comes preaching rescue from the law into grace and salvation in Christ. And these cats are having none of it. And so he's preaching the gospel, doing the work of the kingdom, and he begins to be opposed by these hardliners. But what do we see here in verse 10? But they could not withstand the wisdom and the capital S spirit, not his, like his spirit, because he was just a really powerful speaker. This is capital S, Holy Spirit. They couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he's speaking. Why? Because we've already learned in verse 1 to 7, he's full of the spirit. He's walking in step with the Holy Spirit. And so these hardliners are coming against Stephen and opposing him. And he's preaching the gospel. He's doing apologetics, which he's about to do here in all of chapter 7. And they can't handle it. That's awesome. That's amazing. So, Stephen, under the influence of the Spirit, is not beatable. We also notice here in verse 11 to 14, something very important. Stephen gets treated like Jesus. Do you notice something familiar here in verse 11 to 14? They accused him. They brought false witnesses. Does that smell familiar to something we've read in the Gospels before? Does that smell like Jesus' trial? Right? Right? They accused him. Hey, he's going to tear this place down. We're building in three days. He's against Moses and the law. And they brought in false witnesses to accuse him. That's exactly what they do to Stephen. Stephen gets treated like Jesus. Interesting. There's some points to say about that in just a moment. But we notice something very important here at the end of our passage in verse 15. No, Catch that? And gazing at him. They're all looking at him. They're hearing the accusations. And they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Interesting. What's interesting here is that the Lord bears witness to what Stephen was about to do in giving him a shining face. Just like the one Moses had when Moses came down from meeting with the Lord on the mountain. Because what he's about to do is uncover their idolatry to the land, to the law of Moses, and the temple. And God in His grace bore witness to the message by doing for Him in that moment the supernatural activity of the Spirit where everybody was at least aware that this cat is different. A little quote for you here from Warren Wearsby about this Verse 15, it was not even necessary for Stephen to speak in order to give witness. For the very glow of his face told everybody that he was a servant of God. Certainly the members of the Sanhedrin would recall Moses' shining face in Exodus 34. It was as though God was saying, this man is not against Moses, he's like Moses, and he is my faithful servant. What a glorious thing the Lord does here. Is in this moment of testing, in this moment of him bearing witness, the Lord bears witness through him to them that this is my servant. That's in the text. That's what we see. What are we going to do with this? What are we, what are we supposed to bring out as practice? Number one, here's what you do with this. Ready? Strive to be a follower of Jesus who is worthy of appointment to service. Hear that? Strive to be a follower of Jesus who's worthy of appointment to service. Who's ready, who's available, who's gracious and powerful in the Holy Spirit. 
Make it an aim in life to be a person of character. Make it an aim in life to be a person full of the Spirit, full of wisdom. Walking with the Lord, available, gracious, and powerful in walking with the Lord. Listen very carefully. Powerful ministry starts with humble service. We live in a culture where people want to jump straight into positions of power. And you see this all the time with students. Students feel like they are entitled to six-figure jobs the very second they graduate from college. And they think they've failed somehow, or somehow they've got this sense of failure if all of a sudden they don't get hired in this massive job. Listen, the harsh reality is, great leadership doesn't come on the front end of life. It comes through paying the price of humble service. No ministry leader worth their salt ever started in leadership, but started under authority and learned to serve first. There's nothing worse than leaders who don't know how to be under authority. They're called rogue. Stephen didn't start as a great apologist. He started as a man of character who wasn't afraid to scrub the toilets and take out the trash. Strive to be a follower of Jesus who is sought after because of their humility, their availability, Gracious and powerful walking with the Holy Spirit. Second thing you can do from this. Preach the gospel. Every opportunity you have. Listen, I think this is vital for us to understand. We read passages like this. And would you see, I don't see signs and wonders. I, I want you to hear this. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's not because God doesn't do signs and wonders. It's because we don't preach the gospel. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you told the good news this week to somebody who doesn't know. I'd be afraid there would be no hands. We live in a county where 80 plus percent of the people have no affiliation to any church whatsoever. Signs and wonders don't come on the front. They come in response to obedience to Jesus' command to make disciples. You understand that? They're not going to happen on the front end to validate your faith. That's not how it works. God doesn't give signs and wonders so you feel better about your trust in Jesus so that you might then go and obey Him. That's not how it works. Obedience comes because we trust Jesus, we believe Jesus. He who hears these words of mine and does them is a wise person who builds their house on the rock. We hear, we obey. Jesus gives witness to that with signs and wonders. That's how it works. He's doing that among some of you. You've seen signs and wonders. We as a church see these signs and wonders and some of the cool things God is doing around us. Spiritual warfare, spiritual conflict, things the city's doing, right? But often we don't see signs and wonders because we are not doing gospel work. Preach the gospel to every opportunity you have. One of the great problems in the southeast, post-Christian south, is we are so isolated from the lost world. We even teach, there are certain branches of Christianity who try to isolate our kids from the world. We're to be training our kids to engage the world. Not isolate ourselves from the world. Paul even addresses this in 1 Corinthians 5 when he talks about church discipline. He said, I'm not saying that you're supposed to leave the world. Otherwise, we've got to die and get out. No. We are to be in, not of. We're to be citizens of the kingdom of God, obeying Jesus at every turn, making disciples, preaching the good news. The good news must be first on our lips. I'm going to throw the gauntlet down to you. You ready? You need to be able to articulate the good news. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Those are the, that's the framework. That's the heading. That's how you, creation. Who made everything? What did he make? What's the problem? Fall, right? What did he do about it? Redemption, Jesus, cross, salvation, resurrection, right? What, what's the end? Restoration, his second coming, his fixing of all things and your role in making disciples among the nations. You need to be able to articulate that in 60 seconds or less. And it's doable. I do it. And you need to be quick with that message. 
You need to default to that message. It's the framework. It's the meta-narrative. Hadn't used my favorite word in a long time. By which you interpret everything that happens in life. Why are people shooting up nightclubs? Because of the fall. Why are people in those nightclubs doing what they're doing? Because of the fall. People are broken. They're broken from birth. They don't get broken somewhere about 12 or 13. They're broken from conception. And unless intersected by the powerful work of the gospel, are capable of anything. Looking like they're normal. You need to read this book called The Lost Executioner. Not in the notes. Fascinating story about a British photojournalist who found one of the most prolific, prolific executioners of human beings in the history of the world named Comrade Doik. In Cambodia during the killing fields. And you know what he was doing when he found him? Teaching fifth grade boys. And he was known to be one of the most gentle, effective, loving teachers they had ever known. Yet he is the most prolific executioner. Cold-hearted execution of children, women, and men. In the history of the world. Under the communist regime in Cambodia. Comrade Doit. It's called The Lost Executioner. You can find it on Amazon for about five bucks. This guy looked and acted normal, yet he was a cold-blooded killer. We're capable of anything. All of us in this room were a hairline step across from being just like that. Right? Everybody we come in contact is. So therefore, you need to have that framework as the framework from which you address everything. Be quick with the gospel. Does that make sense? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the what? Power of God for salvation. We believe that or we don't. If we don't, we need to quit gathering. You know what I'm saying? So let's preach the gospel at every opportunity we have. It's a powerful message. It ripped me from the domain of darkness and transferred me to the kingdom of His Son instantaneously. I don't have time to tell you my story. But took me from sin to righteousness that quickly. Because it's powerful. One of the greatest signs and wonders to happen in our midst is a heart that was dead that now is alive. Eyes that were blind that now see. Preach the gospel at every opportunity you have. Don't isolate yourself from the world. Engage it. Expect opposition. Third, expect opposition. Expect to be treated like Jesus. Jesus said, they treated me like this. They will treat you like this. Jesus said that. Do you know expectation is an application? I feel funny sometimes when we're talking about application, what you are to go and do, because it doesn't feel like you can do anything with an expectation. It's not like a hammer you can wield and hit a nail with it. But expectation is the internal response, right? I don't even know how to define expectation. I just know what it is, right? It's hidden in the notes. Except to expect opposition. Unmet expectations, right? Often people may come to Jesus because they're told that if I come to Jesus, Jesus is going to make everything better and I'll never get sick and everything will go right. And that's just a lie. Not true. So when things start going south, Jesus, where are you? Because the expectation was false. So expectation is an actual application. Therefore, expect to be treated like Jesus. Expect opposition. The gospel will be opposed. It just will. Jesus said it would be. Because it's an exclusive message. It's a message that doesn't speak glowingly to our self-esteem. The reason you do that is because you're separated from God and cut off from God. And at war with God and He's going to win. You see what I'm saying? Maybe even in this room you have a negative response to that. Much less people who aren't even in the faith. How dare you say that about me? Right? So expect to be treated like Jesus. Expect to be misunderstood like Jesus. We're talking gospel to people. We're talking to blind eyes, deaf ears. Although seeing, they do not see. Although hearing, they do not hear. And so therefore, it's a message that requires Holy Spirit to do work long before we got there, while we're there, and when we're gone. 
Right? So our part is simply to tell and trust God to bring increase. So expect opposition. But at the same time, final application here, expect the Lord's empowerment of kingdom labor. (laughs) Expect His empowerment. Expect His empowerment. Listen, God does incredible things when you're gone. If you're faithful with the gospel, Jesus is faithful to do what He said He would do. Jesus taught us that trust in Him is powerful, didn't He? Jesus said, if you trust in me, if you have faith, like the size of a grain of a mustard seed, you can speak to this mountain, be uprooted and cast in the sea, and it has to obey you. That's Jesus using a literary device called hyperbole to illustrate the point that if you do what I say to do and trust me to do it, incredible things will happen. Do you believe that? Then obey him, do what he says, trust him to move the mountains. Because he can He will. He does. So although we may be opposed, expect the Lord's empowerment of kingdom labor to do great things. Okay? Observation number two. What do we see? What does it mean? Well, this is where we jump into Stephen's speech in front of the Sanhedrin. And it's found in verse 1 to 60. not going to read all 60 verses. Stephen... Here, what do we see? What does it mean? Stephen speaks prophetically. Listen carefully to this. Because I'm going to call all of you in this room to learn to look at your culture with the prophetic eyes of Scripture and challenge you to speak boldly to it. Remember, Stephen's not an apostle. (laughs) He's not a prophet. He's not an evangelist. He's not a pastor, teacher. He's a man full of the Spirit and full of wisdom with a stellar character. Meaning we all should fit into that category. And look what he does. Stephen speaks prophetically to Jewish idols. He rebukes their unbelief. And he does that all before the kingdom is about to explode and expand to the Samaritans and the Gentiles of the world. Stephen's powerful testimony is going to be the climax of the church's witness to the Jews. Matter of fact, after we get past... Verse 60, we are going to see God be in charge of this great persecution. And yes, God is the one who does it. And He scatters the church and they all go about preaching the gospel. And so this testimony that Stephen makes is a prophetic climax to the church's work among the Jews. And so therefore it is going to require Stephen to speak prophetically to them. I want you to keep this in mind. This is probably not in your notes on the blog, MitchJolly.com. You can see these notes. So they're there. They're just not bolded like in mine. They're red and all capital. So I intentionally don't miss this. Okay? So hear this. Keep this in mind. Judaism, as the relationship between God and His people, predated the temple, the law, And even the land of Israel. All of these were expressions of Judaism rather than its core. And I footnoted that. And that's coming out of Conrad Gimpf. German guys wrote great commentaries back in the day. In the New Bible Commentary. All of these were expressions of Judaism rather than the core. Now listen carefully. These are my words. The people's problem is that they grabbed onto the expression in that season of the mission as the core and served the expression rather than the God who gave them the expression and season. Idols are good things. We turn into God things and put flesh on them and that makes them bad things. What Stephen's going to do here is speak prophetically to three Jewish idols. He's going to speak to the idol of the land, the idol of the law and Moses, and the idol of the temple. And remember the quote I just read to you. Judaism as relationship to God and His people predated the land, the law, and the temple. And that's really going to be Stephen's main point here. If you go through and read this carefully, you will discover in regard to particularly 
verse 1 to 36, the land. Stephen starts, chapter 7, verse 1. And the high priest said, are these things so? And notice what Stephen doesn't do. He doesn't answer the accusation. He doesn't go back and answer the accusation. He launches into this prophetic uncovering of their idolatry. And he starts in verse 1 through 36 on the land. And if you read it carefully, you will discover that all of God's activity in these people happened before they were in the land. Isn't that crazy? You'd think if the land were the point, that all the great activity would have happened in the land. But it doesn't. Stephen recounts for them this amazing Old Testament history where all this great stuff happened outside the land. He started with Abraham. He called Abraham where? Outside the land. And when Abraham passed through the land, he didn't even give him a place to lay his head in the land. He sent him somewhere else. Why? Because the point's not the land. The point is the God who's calling Abraham into relationship with himself. And he goes on. Joseph. One of the greatest stories in the Old Testament doesn't happen in the land. God brings him out of the land down to Egypt. Where God does what? Blesses him. Where? Outside the land. And God doesn't even take him back to the land. Because there's a famine in the land. He sent him to Egypt to rescue his family from the land. So that when they got hungry, they came down to Egypt out of the land. And guess what? Ate in Egypt. Why? Because the land's not the point. But they had made it the point. They still make it the point. Be careful, evangelical Christian, that you don't make it the point. The land, Genesis 12, 1-3 was to be the launching point for the mission to the nations. Remember, the land's not the point. The land was the base off of which Abraham and his descendants were to go to all the nations that he just spread throughout the earth with different languages in the previous chapter of Genesis. The point's not this little tiny strip of dirt. The point's the whole earth. And they turned it into this issue about the strip of dirt. The land became something to hoard rather than something to supply mission and invite others to come and see. And they're holding on to the dirt and Stephen's about to absolutely blow them up prophetically. Because we're going to get to where he makes a really rough... He would fail public speaking class. Stephen failed public speaking class with the transitions that he makes here. No segues, no like nice little transitions, just land, Moses, temple, boom. Prophetic. So the first idol he uncovers is you've made the land the point. All of God's work happened outside the land. The land's not the point. Idol number two, the law of Moses. Verse 37 to 43. Which, by the way, he kind of ends the whole thing on the land with Moses. And where was Moses when the greatest work of God in Moses' life happened? (laughs) Outside the land. It's called the Exodus. Greatest Old Testament picture of the gospel. Didn't happen in the land. And then he transitions here from verse 37 to Moses and the law. Pastor Jim already quoted Galatians 3.24. This law that God gave through Moses was to be a teacher, a tutor, to lead folks to the one that he says here that God would raise up like Moses who would come after him. So this law was to be one that would point them to the one who would come after Moses. Can anybody think of who that might be? Who would speak the words of God rightly, give them the truth, the new covenant, Die in their place for their sin. Can I think of who that might be? Jesus. The law. And that's the whole point of Galatians. Is to show them the law was there to point you to Jesus. And rather than understand the law as a vehicle to point us to Jesus. The law became something to control people. Rather than reveal a savior king who would reveal God's glory to us. Which is why. It's not in your notes. Grammar matters. Before you get to the Decalogue, the 10, in Exodus 20, 
the indicative comes before the imperative. We often read the law as though the imperative comes before the indicative because we don't read verse 1. When we teach kids the Ten Commandments, we don't start at the beginning. We start after the indicative. And if you start after the indicative, you just made a legalist. The indicative, which is grammar, right? It's a mood of a verb which states a simple fact. And how does the law start? I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I'm God. I am your God. I have purchased you. You are mine. That's the indicative. Then the imperative. Here's how you look like it. When you put the imperative in front of the indicative, you turn people into legalists. We often start with the ten before we start with the fact that, no, God's already purchased them with a great sacrifice of blood. They're His people. Now, this is how they look like it. We often start with, here's what it looks like to be God's people. Do this, and if you don't do this, then you're not God's. One's the gospel, one's not. They went with the not. So rather than see the law as a vehicle to point us to that one who would be like Moses, who would tell us all the words of God and represent us before the Father and die in our place for our sin, we look straight to the law as a means of control. Idol number three, the temple, verse 44 to 50. The temple was supposed to be a come and see landmark for the nations. See the Queen of Sheba. That they might know the Lord. How do we know this? Second Chronicles 6, 32-33. This is Solomon's prayer of dedication for the temple. You ready? Blow your mind. Likewise, when a foreigner... When a foreigner... Foreigner supposed to come here? We supposed to let foreigners in? Yep. Likewise, when a foreigner... Who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. That's Solomon's prayer. The nations need to come and see your glory. So we're building this house as a signpost. That's not what they did with it. They made it the point. And they cut the Gentiles out. Such that when Jesus comes along and they're buying and selling in the court of the Gentiles where unbelievers were supposed to come and see glory, He casts them out and He said, You have taken my house of prayer and made it a den of robbers. Why? Because that place was to be where unbelievers came and saw glory. They made the temple the point not the nations. Stephen speaks prophetically to this. You say, well, I've just heard history up to this point. Verse 51. You stiff-necked people. Whoa! Hey! Time out! Uncircumcised in heart and ears. Whoa! Those are harsh words. You stiff-necked. That's not nice. Uncircumcised in heart and ears. Y'all know what circumcision is, right? You can't hear. You've read these stories your whole life and you don't know the point. You're uncircumcised in heart. You can't feel the point. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Dang! He just brought thunder up in the house of God. He prophetically speaks to their idolatry. It's a great example. George Whitfield. I'll just read you the whole thing. Stephen had become a bit strident, but rightfully so. Similarly, in a later era, George Whitfield preached to the New England church three evenings in a row on You Must Be Born Again. The message was so vigorous. Now, if you've read anything about George Whitfield, you know he wasn't a soft-spoken man. He was known to be able to speak to thousands at a time with no sound system. This is in the Great Awakenings, pre-sound system, right? You guys know that. Whitfield, Wesley, kind of Great Awakenings, okay? 
And he preached vigorously. He preached hard. He preached prophetically. He said hard things and thousands came to faith in Christ. He preached, you must be born again. The message was so vigorous that the elders finally came to him and asked, Mr. Whitfield, why do you keep preaching? You must be born again. This is his response. Because you must be born again. Logic's pretty clear. Because you must be born again. And you're not. So I'm going to preach it until the Spirit of God moves and you're born into the faith. Dang. We fire those guys in our denomination. That's why the tenure in average Southern Baptist Church is two and a half years. It is. We make life miserable for those guys. Right? See, Stephen wanted to get his message across. You've sinned and you need a Savior. You stiff-necked people. Uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Transitions be danged. Idols needed uncovering and they needed to repent. You say, geez, what do we do with this information? What do we, and here's where I'm going to challenge you. Number one, Stephen knew his culture well, did he not? He knew it so well that he knew what the idols were. Three of his church, Know your culture well enough to speak prophetically to it. Do not be products of it. Know it well enough to speak prophetically to it. You see, part of the prophet's job is to rebuke knowledge contrary to God. See Isaiah, see Jeremiah, see Ezekiel, see Daniel, and one of my favorites in the Old Testament from 1 Kings 22, Micaiah. He's a neat dude. Ahab's moron. Married to Jezebel, a moroness. And he gets Jehoshaphat, a pretty good king, Judah, to come with him to go to battle at this place called Ramoth Gilead. And so Jehoshaphat, being a fear of the Lord, hey, uh, you got any prophets here who can tell us what the Lord's word is? Eh, I got, yeah, these guys. He's like, you got anybody who'll tell us the truth? Well, there's just one guy, but he never says anything nice about me. True, read it. Go get him. Okay, so they bring Micaiah in, and on the way they're letting him know, hey, they're saying that this is going to be a success. Just say the same thing. Brings in Micaiah. What does Micaiah do? Yes, go up, it's yours. And here's what Ahab does. Ahab goes, didn't I make you swear to never say anything to me but the truth? He just heard what he wanted to hear. Micaiah goes, yeah, I saw your army scattered all over the hills. Not a good day for you, Ahab. Bind him and throw him in prison and feed him on meager rations of water and bread. Lose-lose <laughs> for poor Micaiah. Right? But he brought the word of the Lord clearly, spoke prophetically to his day and his age. Three of his church, you need to know your culture well enough to speak prophetically to it. Speak boldly for the sake of the king and his kingdom. And this makes all of us cringe just a little bit, doesn't it? Because let's just be honest, we don't like people like that, do we? We like soft messages that tell me how to be a better dad in three easy steps. We want messages that tell me how to make as much money as I possibly can and store it up in this life as best as I can. We want messages that tell me how to avoid hardship and difficulty and to soothe my guilty conscience. We don't want to hear what the Lord's desire is. We don't want to hear what the Lord's purpose is. God forbid the Lord's purpose be contrary to mine. I mean, after all, am I supposed to go do something and ask Him to bless it? Mm -mm. No, we have one mission, disciple the nations. And we're supposed to be on His mission, doing His thing in His way. The Rivers Church, know your culture well and speak prophetically to it. One of the reasons we came back to Rome is because I'm from here and I'm a product of this place and we're in a post-Christian South that is dead and dying and full of idols. And many of them wear a Christian t-shirt. What are some of our idols? Uh-oh. Dadgummit, I came to church on the wrong day. Well... One idol we have in our post-Christian South is children. Children are arrows to extend the mission. Psalm 127, 3-4. They're not objects 
of overdone affection that become dulled, weak, and can no longer be launched. You see, in order to sharpen to a point and an edge, there has to be friction. Rough edges have to be ground off and done so carefully and skillfully and intentionally. Likewise, our children have to be trained to be sharp and pointed arrows that are made with skillful and careful attention and skillful and careful strokes for the purpose of extending the mission of the kingdom. Dads, your children are arrows in your quiver. You know what that does? You know what an arrow does for an archer? It extends his range. Your children are to extend your range so that when you die, you live on. That changes how a parent, doesn't it? See, comfort, a lack of discipline, improper rescue, teaching our children a lack of concern for other people first, makes sticks for warming ourselves by fire, making s'mores, not implements for advancing the kingdom. Children aren't given to us for the purpose of simply having fun. They're given to us to extend our range beyond our life. But we worship our children. We bow down to them by paying inappropriately for things for them to have rather than training them as citizens of the kingdom. Number two... We like community without the kingdom. We like being together with like-minded people. And that may look like people who like our idol too. We don't like being on mission in covenant with and accountable to a group who are submitted to Jesus, His church, and His global mission of being worshipped by all peoples. So we like to be together with other Christians. We just don't like to be together with other Christians who are on the mission of the kingdom. We like a super informed faith with no actions. We like faith without works. Faith without works feels good, doesn't it? Because when I go to my fourth Bible study for the week, I feel really informed and spiritually fat and pleasant. Oh, but I'm supposed to go, I'm supposed to love Muslims. Ooh. I'm supposed to love people in the LGBT community, practically. Mmm. I just think I need to go to another Bible study. I need to get my heart right and hear the Lord clearer. We like faith without works. We like classroom orthodoxy. And we like field heresy. Many Bible studies, zero Bible practices. You know one of the things that absolutely stumps Christians in the East is that we have Bible studies without practice. You know what they do? Bible study equals 30 minutes of study, 30 minutes of practice. So if they're studying evangelism, they don't read a book on evangelism. They read Acts and some passages on how they did it, then they go put it to practice. Uh Uh-oh. Well, I got to go. I got to go somewhere. (laughs) I need to escape. I don't want to do anything. I just want to hear about it. Make me feel better. Do you know one of the sad things about the West is we... We we love information. And the reason we love information because it gives us the appearance of action. If I can be hacked off about something and display it enough on Facebook, tweet about it, I'm doing something for the sake of the kingdom. Ain't nobody reading your Facebook posts and tweets. Don't nobody care. Don't nobody care. Matter of fact, I skip over most of that junk. And I delete people because they put stuff on my out there that people that follow me might turn them off of the gospel. Harsh reality is we like information because it makes us feel like we're doing something. And the reality is we don't need more information. We need to do something with what we know. And then we will really know. You'll never know Muslim evangelism until you engage Muslims with the questions that they have. Reading books on Muslim evangelism won't teach you near as much as sitting down in front of a Muslim, having a meal of their choice and listening to them and learning how to speak into their life prophetically. But that means some people won't like you because you like them Muslims. And they all turn. Right? Right? And some of you may think that sitting in this room. 
And I would say to you, go to your Bible and read it and obey it. Well, now that nobody will be back ever in the history of Three Rivers Church. (laughs) What do we see? Observation 3, verse 54 to 60. What does it mean? Well, we see here in verse 54 to 60 that the leadership didn't receive the prophetic words. (laughs) They didn't all repent and sackcloth and ashes and obey the Lord. In fact, we we read here that they were enraged. This word enraged literally means cut to the heart. But not in a good way, like in Acts 2, where they heard the gospel and says they were cut to the heart. Same language. This is cut to the heart in the sense of, you just made me really angry. But notice, we read here, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. This is fun. I'm going to, because I'm really, really totally out of time. Full of the Holy Spirit is two words. Huparco pleris. They're two words that make up one idea. It's a participle, which is a verbal adjective. You're like, geez, just skip to the point. Two words describing one reality. Full. Full. Full of the Spirit. Huparco Plaris. Full of the Spirit is adjectively describing the very action of Stephen's life. Stephen didn't get filled with the Spirit, Stephen lived full of the Spirit. And that's the point. He was an effective witness because he lived full of the Spirit. And doesn't that kind of bring us full circle? Because that's where we start in verse 1 to 7. He was known as a man walking full of the Spirit. Listen very carefully. I'm going to stop right here. Because we're out of time. Three of his church walked full of the Spirit. Lived daily full of the Spirit. And the only way you can do that The only way you can do that is to know the manual, strive for holiness, seek repentance, not in front of the eyes of men, but in the closet where God sees and what God sees in secret, He will reward you openly. Those are the words of Jesus. Be accountable to the body. Love each other. Strive for peace together. And you will walk full of the Spirit. You'll have effective ministry. Your character will be intact. You notice what ends up happening here. They kill Him. And he dies full of the Spirit, which is how we're all supposed to die. Full of the Spirit, walking with the Spirit of God. What's interesting here is, this happened in front of the eyes of a young man named Saul. This Saul heard Stephen's words. And he will be the Saul in Acts 9 who gets saved. And you think Stephen's message may have influenced the message of the great Apostle Paul? You bet it did. Jesus never wastes the death of his saints. Matter of fact, I put a passage here. Psalm 116, 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. There's no death of a follower of Jesus Christ that Jesus doesn't stand for in honor. And he wastes nothing. (laughs) Stephen died full of the Spirit. And in his death, influenced the great Apostle Paul. That's a life well lived, wouldn't you think? Short. Didn't die full of years, but he died full of the Spirit. And I would say that's a darn good way to go. Three of us church, let's strive to be like Stephen. Follow Jesus, obey Jesus, preach the gospel, and let's worship Him. Father, we pray in Jesus' name for Your glory and our joy that You would um, bring us to a place where we can enjoy You and worship um, Lord, I've been exceptionally long on Father's Day, and um, so I trust you to uh, kind of maybe overcome me. Um, Lord, I pray that you speak to your people. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts and mobilize us. And Lord, I pray you rip out idols. God, I'm I'm an my heart is an idol factory. My heart is an idol factory, and I confess that to you. And I have my own that I like to bow down to and sacrifice to. And I'm far too sophisticated to have it in the form of a metal statue or a wooden statue, but they're there, they're in my heart. And so, Lord, for me, I pray you would take those out and um, make me a servant of your kingdom. And I pray for your people that if there needs to be idols ripped out, that you would take them out. You'd do so in a powerful way, in a redemptive way, in a supernatural way. 
Lord, I pray that you would put your word in our mouth and make us prophets to our people. Um, Lord, if we get treated like Jesus, that's okay. If you choose to save, that's okay too, because that's what's coming next in Acts 8. You, you like to save people with similar messages, so we trust you for that. So Lord, put your words in our mouth and give us courage to speak them. Help us to know our culture well and speak to it. Your truth. But in all these things, Jesus, be glorified, be exalted in our midst. Put in us now a desire to sing to you and make much of you because you've been gracious and kind to us. So help us to make much of you in song. Move in the hearts of your people for it's fitting and right to sing praise to you now. So we pray this in Jesus' name.